Welcome to the Pure Flix Podcast, a show brought to you by PureFlix.com. PureFlix.com, the faith, family, and fun video streaming service. Get ready for uplifting news, scripture, movie reviews, and interviews with some of your favorite actors, authors, and pastors. Let's get started. Hey, what's going on? It's Billy Hollowell. Welcome to the Pure Flix Podcast. We have got an action-packed show for you today. We've got two big discussions coming up. The first is with Allie Beth Stuckey. You might know her from her Blaze podcast. She's also the author of a new book, You're Not Enough, and That's Okay. So with no further ado, let's dive right in by welcoming Allie to the show right now. Hey, how's it going today? It is going well. How are you? I am doing well. I'm excited to talk with you about your book, You're Not Enough, and That's Okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. Yes. Um, oh, there's a lot to unpack here. So what what is this toxic culture of self-love? Take me through why you wrote the book, what you were noticing, and why you wanted to address it. Yes. Any woman who has been on the internet, especially Instagram, I would say in the past five years, knows what self-love is and even the culture of self-love every influencer that a woman follows whether it's a christian influencer in a lot of cases or a self-help guru or a motivational speaker or even a therapist that you might follow on instagram or some kind of fitness expert they're all kind of saying the same thing and that is that the most important thing that you especially as a woman has to do in order to be successful, to have healthier relationships and to be fulfilled in life is to love yourself. Once you love yourself, we hear, then everything will fall into place. And it's actually just a new reiteration of a lie that we have heard for decades. And that comes from the self-esteem movement that really started in psychology that said, the reason for all of society's problems is low self-esteem. And if we had higher self-esteem, we would have lower crime rates. We would have higher graduation rates, lower child abuse rates, and things like that. Unfortunately, all of this misunderstands human nature, that our greatest need is not to love ourselves. Our greatest need is to know who we are and why we're here. And self-love just doesn't give us those things. It leads us down this path of what I call trendy narcissism of glorifying selfishness in the name of self-love and what it actually ends with is more anxiety more misery failed relationships putting your identity in things like work and a career and possessions and ending up really disappointed in the end and so that's the culture of self-love and that's part of why i argue in the book it's so toxic well, I mean, look at what's going on right now. I mean, you look around the world and we've been told for a long time now, you know, follow your truth. And that always drives me crazy, the right. whole your truth thing. It's like, well, listen, yeah, I get what people are saying that you have your own version of events. If you're having an argument with somebody, that's a different story. But I feel like when people use that term, your truth, they're basically saying there's no there's no solid baseline truth. You get to kind of choose whatever it is you want to believe. And the more we've sort of bought into that, and I think what you're talking about, and also with all sorts of, of social issues and all of that, the more chaotic things have become. Yeah. And so your book couldn't come at a better time because I actually think what you're talking about is very specific, but I think it applies to what we're seeing happen in the news. Wouldn't you agree? It absolutely does. So the book goes through five myths. The first one is that you are enough. We talk about why that's not actually true, how we all just on a practical level know that's not true. And we replace it with 
the gospel truth, which is that Christ is our sufficiency. He is our righteousness. So we don't have to pretend that we're uh, enough in any sense of the word that we actually get our joy and satisfaction from Christ's sufficiency and his righteousness, not our own. And then that leads us into the second myth, which is that you determine your own truth, which you just talked about. Because if you buy into the first lie that you are enough, um, that basically means that you are enough for all that you need, which essentially is making yourself your own God. You're replacing the God of scripture with the God of self. And when you sit on the throne of your own life, you are also going to be the determinant of morality and the determinant of your truth. And so what a lot of people mean when they say own your truth or speak your truth is they typically mean your experiences and your emotions, which are both good things and important to share. But the reason why it's so dangerous to say that that is your truth is because people try to apply personal experience or lived experience to objective truth, to universal truth. And that is when you th see things collide. You talked about a lot of the anarchy that we're seeing in our streets right now. This is a lot of people who have determined that they are their own gods. Therefore, they determine their own truth, their own morality. We've got a million different fists raised in the name of justice, a million different definitions of what justice means. Does it mean retribution, retaliation? Does it mean anger, resentment? What does it actually mean? And so it's creating anarchy because we don't have a shared sense of values, uh, shared uh, any shared set of values or any shared objective truth, certainly no agreement on where truth comes from, and yeah, it's creating not just a lot of chaos, but a lot of purposelessness and a lot of misery. Yeah, I mean, and this whole notion of sin, which we know as Christians, we have sin. It's something that's inerrant in who we are, you know, and and yet culture sort of tells us you don't have sin, like do whatever you want. To a degree, you can pretty much do whatever you want. But then there's that question of, okay, well, where where is that degree? Where does that line end? And nobody can really answer that, right? When you start to actually question people about what they believe, I mean, we know you know this as a conservative, right? If you're a conservative, it's very easy to see that people have lines. They have them all over the place. And any issue you might say you believe something on, people will come alongside and say, that belief is wrong. Why do you believe that? And that's when I'm like, well, you've just drawn a line, right? You can't walk around saying that there are no lines when suddenly you're upset about everything that I think and believe. Yeah. Um, why is it so, and you kind of spoke to this, but I want to, I want to emphasize this because I think it's so important. We we're on this quest to sort of be perfect and we can't be right. We're sinful. Why is it so important? And I think in the description of your book, I have it in front of me. It says, you know, we can't find satisfaction inside ourselves because we are the problem, uh, which I, I love that. Um, but why is sin so important to acknowledge? Well, I think this worldview, this it's really a secular worldview that this trend of self-love comes from, which is why it's so unfortunate that so many Christians have latched onto it. They've really manipulated scripture into thinking that, oh, yeah, this is my biggest problem, that I just don't love myself enough. I really do need to have higher self-esteem. And some Christians even buy into the idea that that is actually why Jesus came and died to show you how awesome you are and to tell you how pretty and talented you are and applaud for you when you are chasing after your goals. And so this misunderstanding of human nature, like we said in the beginning, that comes from this culture of self-love has unfortunately infected people inside the church. And it comes, I think, from um, a discomfort with realizing our imperfection and a uh, an inability to know how to deal with it. The word repentance is blasphemous in this culture of self-love or the idea of having to sacrifice something you want for 
someone else or something else. And so the idea of sin, that there is something objectively wrong with what you do, that there is a higher authority than you that is telling you that you've messed up and there has to be a price paid for that in order for you to have a relationship with me, God, that makes us very uncomfortable um, because we've been sold this lie that the worst thing that you can possibly do, the worst thing you can possibly feel is bad for yourself. And women in the church, I think, have been convinced that the last thing God wants you to feel is bad for yourself. The last thing God wants you to feel is bad about yourself. And that is the worst possible mindset that you have. <laughs> Actually, no, God is pretty clear that pride is the worst possible mindset that you could have, which does come in the form of self-loathing. It does come in the form of self-adoration. I think Christians are called to be away from those two extremes. We're called to self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice and to put our eyes on Jesus's perfection and sufficiency. Um, but all of that is severely messed up if we cannot first acknowledge that we are sinful, depraved human beings in need mm -hmm. of a savior. If we can't start there, we won't understand why the holiness of God is important, why it's so amazing that we got to we get to escape the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. Um, and that is one of the most damaging aspects to this self-love idea is that it misses the gospel. It misses the truth. It misses human nature. It misses the truth about sin and salvation. And that's why I think it wrecks people's theology when they latch onto it. It feels so good in the moment because we do struggle with insecurity. All of us do. And it feels like balm for our insecure heart uh, for a second, but it just doesn't satisfy and it severely leads us astray. Well, and it's like, we're supposed to be broken when we've made a mistake or we've done something contrary to what we were supposed to do. We're supposed to be broken over that. And then we're supposed to seek God to make sure we don't do it again. You know, it's yeah. one thing to aspire not to do things that are wrong and to be like Jesus. It's another thing to try to find an excuse for everything you've done wrong to make yourself feel better about it and to excuse it. So then you just repeat it and do it again and you excuse it in other people. I mean, one of the things for me researching and just looking at where we are culturally you go back to the year 2000 and you look at gallup and you look at the data and it is fascinating every opinion on every single issue between 2000 and right now has so radically changed because this yeah. ideology that you're talking about has just permeated everything and so we just say oh anything goes like there's no yeah. there's no moral but again that's a fake ideology because everybody has those lines, yeah. but this is damaging. And I think it's particularly important that you're addressing the church because it's happening among so many Christians where they're just like, oh, you know, I need to feel good about myself. Well, no, sometimes you need to feel bad about yourself. You did something that was wrong or you're not living the yeah. right way, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Paul that says godly grief is good. It can lead us to repentance. Now, of course, we don't believe that wallowing constantly in shame and accusation and condemnation. I mean, the Bible is also clear. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ, that we have mm -hmm. become a new creation. And so there is a difference between guilt over our sin, which we should feel, and believing the accusations and the condemnation of the enemy. And we have to pray for the wisdom to be able to discern between those things. But when we, I, I'm afraid that in particular, a lot of women's ministries, and I just say this because I am a woman, and so I noticed this from that perspective, lump those two things together. And I've heard a lot of Christian women say, God doesn't want you to feel guilty. He doesn't want you to feel bad. He doesn't want you to have regrets. He doesn't want you to feel ashamed at all over your, over your past mistakes. Well, if you love God, 
you will feel regret over your past sin. Um, that's it just comes with the territory. And again, I think that we have to be able to distinguish using God's wisdom between believing the accusations of the enemy and believing that we are still slave to sin, believing that we are an old creation rather than a new creation and saying, wow, I sinned and I hurt God. I, 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 I sinned against the God that I love and I really regret that and I want to repent and be sanctified. Holy Spirit, please help me. There is a total difference, I think, in those postures, but we can't push aside both of them in the name of, I think a lot of people do it in the name of freedom, in the name of being, you know, liberated. And uh, I think that's really dangerous. It, it, it gives us a sense of arrogance before God. And that is the last thing we should feel before the God of the universe. So how do you, because you are obviously, you're a host, you're out there, you do a lot in media, you've had a very successful career. How do you deal with the pressure of, of the, I think it's very easy. Maybe you haven't experienced this. I know that I have. It's very easy to say things or find yourself in a trap where you're kind of putting something out. And I haven't seen you do this, honestly, um, where you're like, you know, maybe I shouldn't have said that, or you're feeling the pressure of getting certain numbers or certain elements of success. How do you balance faith and knowing what's meant for you with the pressure that can sometimes come from media? It's a hard world to work in sometimes. Oh, I've done that plenty of times. There are plenty of things that I've said that I wish that I hadn't said that I'm like, oh, maybe maybe I was just kind of getting caught up in the outrage of the moment and I just felt like I had to say something and it wasn't entirely accurate or it just wasn't helpful. I think often we don't think is this truthful and helpful to the conversation or am I just you know, saying something so people can look back and say, okay, yeah, Ali Stucky made a statement about that. So, you know, people do that. They say, you know, I, I didn't see anything on, you know. Right, right. You didn't talk about this, but you talked about that, right? Yeah. That whole thing. So right, right. There are definitely times where I've acquiesced to that pressure and I don't think that's right. The right question should be um, what is obedient and God glorifying in this moment and what is truthful and what is helpful and I certainly fail at that. I probably fail at that every day. And sometimes I just have to take a step back from Twitter completely. Yesterday morning, I just had to say, you know what? I am done with Twitter for the day because it was too much. There was too much craziness. And I just couldn't handle it and have a, the mind that I knew that I needed to have to focus yeah. on things that are important. So I think it takes a level of discipline, a lot of prayer in realizing Sometimes you just don't have the strength to do it. You just have to cut yourself off. Yeah, I tweeted. I started. I wrote a tweet today. And I was literally about to send it, and I was like, "Nope!" Like I deleted it. And, it, yeah. and I've been trying to do that more because it's especially now. I think the next couple months we're all going to find ourselves in positions where we are yeah. responding, especially because you know you get responses from people, and it's like, "What in the world is wrong with you? Why would you yeah. ever tweet that at somebody?" Right? Yeah. And so you you go to respond. It's like it's not worth it. What am I going to accomplish? I mean, every once in a while you do because it's like yeah. right. Right. It's, it's crazy. So, so let me ask you this. What are you hoping like for you? What is the big takeaway after somebody's read this book? What do you want them thinking and feeling? Well, the most meaningful messages and emails that I've gotten have been from people who basically just say this changed the way that I think about things. This changes the way that I think about the entertainment that I take in every time I see one of these phrases or every time I see my you know, formerly favorite motivational speaker say something, I'm always second guessing it. And I'm like, 
Praise the Lord. That's really all right. I want. I don't necessarily want people to say, you know, this book changed my life, or I always think of these quotes from this book. But even if I can just equip people to take that extra step, when you hear something that sounds good, that strokes your ego, to take just a second and say, is this true? Is it true? And is it helpful? Like, is it true according to God's word? Is this who I am according to God? Is this who God is? Is this putting my eyes on myself or is this putting my eyes on God? Mm. And if I can get people to just take that extra step to critically think about the messages that we are receiving, to remember that truth comes from an objective source, the God of the universe, I think that changes not just what you think about yourself, your relationships, uh, what you think about your work. That's something that we talk about in the book, but it's going to change even what you think about issues like justice. It's going to change what you think about politics. It's going to change what you think about. We talk about abortion and quote gender identity in this book. Once you realize that God is the authority over not just who you are and, and what other, you know, who you actually are, what your identity is, but he is the authority over all of it, over your work, over your relationships, your kids, your marriage, social media, politics, all of it, then that completely changes your perspective. And if I can encourage people to remember that and to think through that in every single issue, then I will see this book as a, as a big accomplishment. Um, so that's what I hope. And I'm thankful that at least for a lot of people that have reached out to me that it's done that so far. So Praise God for that. That's huge. That's really huge. And that's, I mean, what else could you ask for, right? You, I know, obviously you wrote this book. You knew you were supposed to write the book. You were set on that journey. You've done your job. And now you want to see it impact people in a positive way, especially, you know, we're making some big you know, decisions in this country, right? We're about to go into yeah. a presidential election. We've got a lot of chaos going on. And before I let you go, where are you right now? Just on like, what, what is going on around us? I mean, I keep asking that yeah. question. What is happening? How are you processing the crazy events that we're seeing in the news every day? Mm -hmm. Again, I think it has to be a balance for me because I'm sure that you feel like this too. You get sucked into Twitter and you start seeing the videos of the things that are going on in our major cities. And you are like, you're, you're like, oh my gosh, how is this happening right. in the United States? When is this going to come to my city? What do I have to do to protect my family? And all of these thoughts are running through your brain. And it's very easy to think, oh, my gosh, this election determines everything. And I think that's when I have to stop myself and say, yes, there's a lot of craziness that's going on. This is a hurting and a broken world. And gosh, people need Jesus, you know, as much as they ever have. But I cannot get to the point of thinking that politicians are my savior, that an election is going to somehow change God's sovereign plan. I do think the election is important. I do think sure. voting is important. I do think being aware of what's going on in America's major cities is important. But I have to take a step back and to say, okay, no matter who wins in November, no matter what happens today or tomorrow, my obligation as a Christian to be obedient does not change. God is not going to all of a sudden say, okay, now you don't need to love your neighbor as yourself. Now you don't need to pray without ceasing. Now you don't need to be free from worry, as God says. And I also have to remember, Christians have gone through worse throughout our history. It's been a very unique reprieve over the past 100 or so years in America that we have been, or longer than that, been able to enjoy religious liberty and have been free of persecution. 
That is not the history of the church holistically. And it's and not so, a guarantee. And it's not a guarantee for any Christian, right? Right. No. And so I think just remembering that and remembering that God knew all of those stages in church history when he said, do not worry. Your father loves you more than the sparrows in the sky or the lilies of the field. Do not worry. Do not fear. We hear over and over again. And so I just have to remember that, that God is in complete control. He tells me to pray for all of my leaders. I'm going to pray for Republicans and Democrats. I'm going to pray for the people rioting, for the people looting, for the people who are hurt on both sides of this issue. And I'm going to pray for real justice to be executed. That's God's justice, not our definition of justice, but God's definition of justice and for peace and for the gospel to be spread. And yeah, our obligation as Christians does not change, even when it seems like the world is falling down around us. That is the steady truth that I think keeps me anchored and helps yeah. me not go crazy. That's a good, that is a good thing to be anchored on. And yeah. that's the truth, right? We're supposed to be spreading the gospel and that's, what's going to create change. And so sometimes I have to remind myself of that. It's like, listen, I can tweet all day long. I can share articles. I can argue with people, but at the end of the day, until individual people's hearts are changed, that's the only way you're going to change the the whole. And we also know, and this is a whole other theological conversation, that that's not necessarily what we're told in Scripture is going to happen. That we're going to have, you know, the that everything's just going to be kumbaya. That that's not necessarily where we might be headed. So, uh, but it's important for us to be lights, no matter what's going to happen. We don't know precisely what's going to happen. So. Well, listen, I appreciate your time today, and I want to make sure everybody out there grabs copies of your Not Enough. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Did you know you can access thousands of entertaining and inspiring faith and family-friendly TV shows, movies, and original series? It's simple. Just log on to pureflix.com right now to start your free trial. From kids' content to some of the most uplifting films, We've got your entire family covered. Sign up today. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. And we're back with more of the Pure Flix podcast. Super excited to be diving into our next interview. Now, today's show... It has a little more going on than normal uh, because what I wanted to do, I wanted to revisit an interview we did last year with Luis Palau. If you don't know Luis Palau, he is a legendary evangelist and really just has a phenomenal life story. He was born in Argentina, and he just grew up to be this fascinating faith leader. He has transformed so many people's lives, and I am just really blessed to have had a chance to talk with him last year. Now, there is a movie called Palau. It is about his life. It's a feature film. And it's now streaming on pureflix.com. And so we wanted to bring this interview back, remind you guys of what Luis had to say about his incredible story, but also point you over to that movie. Head over to pureflix.com. If you currently have a subscription, a membership, that's great. You can use it to watch. If you don't, you can get a free trial. Try out the service. We've got thousands of Christian and family-friendly movies, TV shows, and original series for you to stream right now. Among the films on the platform is Palau. Now, with no further ado, I I want to play for you our interview with Luis Palau. Hey, Luis, how you doing today? 
Good morning, sir. Good morning. How's your program coming along? It's coming along really well because you're here today, which I'm excited about. <laughs> and, I'm <super> alert today. <laughs> well, you know, you I have always I've always admired you and your ministry, and it's been years since we were able to talk last. I interviewed you years ago when I worked at the Blaze and had a chance to hear the ins and outs of your story. And there's now a film. Uh, and the film is called Palau, and it, it's come out on digital, and it's come out on DVD. People can grab copies of the film about your life. I want to get into your ministry and talk about so many other things, but I have to start by asking you, what was it like to have your life turned into a movie, to kind of watch that as a viewer? Well, you know, I'll tell you, Billy, it's one of the most embarrassing things that could happen to you. That's what I <laughs> truly, you know, I mean, for two reasons. One— I say to my friends, have you watched the movie on me? <laughs> you know, it's really <clears throat> very humble. And then the second thing is, uh, you know, the, you leave gaps in between. And so my wife was picky, 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 if anything else. <laughs> you know, if you don't say it to precision, and if you skip a detail, why, the whole thing blows up. So it's been a, a real balancing act, you know. But it's really been a blessing to hear the response. That's what really has excited me, Billy. The, the the people responding have totally taken us by surprise, but I'll get back into that maybe as we keep talking. Sure. Well, once people hear your story, I think you can understand why people are encouraged and excited about about the film. I guess, you know, you've been in ministry for, for a long time, okay? Yes. And yes. take me through what it was that, and it was an early age that you felt the calling, but take me through that. Like, what was your, what was your early, your earliest feeling that this is where God wanted you to go? Well, you know, Billy, my dad died when I was 10 years old. I've told that story everywhere because it marked my life. And it made me realize, you know, a person dies and they never come back home. You know, they're gone. And in the case of my dad, he was a believer. Thanks to missionaries in Argentina, he went singing, clapping his hand, quoting the Bible, and he took off for heaven. So it was a glorious ending to a short life. He was only 34, and I was a 10-year-old boy. So that got me going about thinking about eternity and where you go when you die without gruesomeness or anything. You know, in my case, my mom told us, uh, John 14, you know, he's with Jesus. And one day we'll all see him. It'll be a few years, but we'll all be together and et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't like a gruesome thought. It was a glorious thought. And my thinking, even as a boy, I can remember, Billy, saying, this is the way to die singing, clapping your hands, quoting the Bible, and peacefully going on to be with the Lord, you know. And then since I was born in Argentina, where people have a form of Christianity, but not the full gospel good news of the assurance of eternal life, you know. And I remember people in the neighborhood, a man down the street about, oh, let's say 40 yards from my house, he was dying. And uh, you could hear him screaming out loud, I mean, this was just a mature old, not oldish, just upper middle middle life. I'm dying and dying and I'm going to hell and no one can help me, you know. And I thought, wow. that's what I've got to do. You know, I was about 15, maybe 16. I can't remember precisely. And uh, and I thought, man, i got to tell people like this man how they can know where they're going and that they don't have to go to hell, that they can go to heaven. So that's how in my mind, Billy, uh, my, my mind uh, reminds me, that's where I felt, 
whatever else I do. And I thought I'd be a businessman because my dad was a businessman who also preached the gospel on the side, so to speak. Uh, I thought I'd do that. But whatever it is, we've got to tell people how to have eternal life. Yeah. Well, that's see, and that's incredible. Did you ever imagine, though, that you would end up having such a massive international ministry and doing what it is you do? I mean, was that ever something in that moment as a teenager when you thought, I want to tell people? Did you envision that for your life? No. No, in those days, I thought of my neighborhood, of the kids in the neighborhood, of the the people around me there in the city of Cordoba in Argentina, you know. And then after probably two or three years in my late teens, I really, with a bunch of buddies, we spent all night, Friday night praying, you know, and asking the Lord's guidance and holiness and all sorts of things. Uh, We began to think, oh, the city of Cordoba is about a million people in those days. Now it's more like two and a half uh, a million people. How do we touch the city? You know, many of these people have a form of religion, but no assurance of eternal life. They don't really know the Bible. In those days, it was prohibited even to to give away the Bible or to sell it. So uh, how do we get them? So then we began to think city. But I, uh, at the most, I thought was some places in Argentina. That was it. The vision grew later on when another missionary came into my life and really, in prayer, just blew my mind about thinking not just Argentina, Central South America, and then eventually, months later, the world, you know? So it grew kind of fast when it got rolling, uh, the Holy Spirit using other people. What would you say has been the biggest lesson you've learned in ministry over all these decades? Ah, wow. Only one, huh? If I had to pick only one, fundamental is be a man of one book, as John Wesley used to call it, the Bible, you know? I want to know, Wesley said, I want to know the way to heaven. Give me the book. I'll stick with this one book. So if you insist on one, I'll stick with that. But I think you have in mind something about evangelism. Uh, I think I would say persist, persist, persist. The gospel is not a thing you do well, one summer as a as a break from college education or something you do on your vacation three weeks and then get back to normal life. Evangelism, proclamation of the good news is a full-time, long life, uh, lifelong um, um, life-giving. Whether you have the gift of proclaiming in an unusual way or uh, you work for a company or you own your own company or you teach or whatever – uh, one of your main goals in life ought to be, how do I share the good news today, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And you have, over the past year and a half or so, since December of 2017, you, you've faced your own battle with stage four lung cancer. What what has that process been like for you when it comes to holding on to your faith through such a, a difficult personal time? Well, you know, I preached about eternal life. This was my main theme, because in Latin America, as you probably get the hint, uh, people just don't have the assurance of eternal life. It isn't proclaimed by the, um, you know, the brand of Christianity that we've had there. So to me, eternal life has been the theme of my preaching. And uh, people respond to that because secretly everybody wants to know who's got any sincerity. Uh, but uh, so to me, speaking about eternal life and then heaven, which is finally the ultimate outcome of knowing that you have eternal life. Eternal life starts on earth. 
the moment Jesus Christ comes into your life, 1 John chapter 5. But then it projects itself into eternity, and finally perfection comes when eternal life becomes full-fledged, total, no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. You know, you know it very well. So that to me uh, is is the uh, you know the emphasis that I think we need to keep hammering away with joy, because the other thing is this, Billy. You know it, of course, uh, but there is no life compared to the life of Jesus Christ and the life He gives us. I mean, it is so glorious. That's why it's called good news, you know. And we need to just let people know by our lifestyle, but mostly by our words, because the gospel is a message, not a life. A life is the result of the message. Uh, so proclaim the good news as it is. Very, very, very good news. And since my my illness, I've just uh, had two years almost now. You know, the doctors thought I'd be gone in nine to 12 months. And the Lord, for the moment, has other plans, you know. And... Um, uh, and, and so to me, it was just sitting down, reviewing the Bible uh, for a moment there for probably, I bet you it was more than a week, but it seemed like Satan was attacking me, you know, telling me, what makes you think that you have eternal life? Sure, you've spoken to millions of people. Anybody can do that, you know, and I felt attacked by Satan, sort of making me doubt. What if you're one of those that Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you, mm. you know, and, and it shakes you up. And then you go back to the book and uh, you read it. I read Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10 over and over and over. And it absolutely, if that doesn't convince you uh, that eternal life is the gift of God and it's total provision for our assurance, nothing will. And it brought total peace. So the last two years I've been reviewing, praising God thanking God for my family, for the people who influenced me, which show up in the in the movie, you know, as you've probably seen it, uh, my team members, my friends, you know, just the intimate uh, uh, of all the people you meet. There's a group of intimate friends and family rejoicing with them, you know, planning for my trip to heaven. Uh, the Lord has delayed it, <laughs> and it's almost embarrassing, Billy, because you know, I kissed everybody goodbye, so to speak, by last Christmas, and here we are now in September, October, uh, a year later, and it still looks like I've got a bit of life left, you know? Well, how uh, amazing so. is that, though? How amazing is that to also, for people to have a chance to hear from you, because I think that there is such a fear in the world when it comes, and even with Christians, not just in the world, when it comes to death, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of what's to come, and what would you say to those who are listening who are afraid of those things in their own life? You know, you're absolutely right, Billy. I've been getting emails and letters and cards and people, you know, meeting me here and there and saying, oh, it helped me because I've got a message that I've been preaching everywhere about heaven, like 25 things about heaven that the New Testament teaches you, you know, it's overwhelming. And uh, so when you talk about it, that absent from the body, present with the Lord, that's the King James translation, Second Corinthians 5. To me, we need to get that. Heaven is reality. Heaven is where the throne of God is. Uh, heaven is a place of millions of people. Think of all the aborted little babies. They're all over there. They're not babies anymore. Uh, think of all the millions upon millions. The Bible says thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. You need somebody from Intel to tell us how much that is, you know. <laughs> but uh, it's a lot of people, and there's a lot of singing in heaven, and the, the cross and the blood of Christ are the center of it, and God's creative power, you know. 
And it's true, Billy, a lot of believers, even one of my sisters who's married to a pastor said to me, you know, you clarified a few things that kind of concern me, what I would react like once I come to your your situation, you know. And it's true, we need to... So I say, read the promises of the Gospel of John. There's no book in the Bible that so gloriously assures you of the gift of eternal life. And secondly, I say, go to Hebrews, one of the most complicated books of the Bible, but also one of the deepest, and it's become so alive to me, Billy. So I say, go to all the promises you know from the Scriptures, underline them in green in your Bible, memorize them, believe them, meditate, and rejoice. Wow. I mean, it's it's inspiring to hear that from you, especially going through what you've been going through. And one of the things that I think is hard to watch in culture right now is the, this rise of hopelessness, you know, that is infecting the church too. You know, this rise of of people feeling like they don't add up, people feeling like they, they don't want to live anymore, right? You see the drug overdose rate skyrocketing, the suicide rates up 31% yeah. in the last 15, 20 years. We are in a, a dire crisis, and I look at you, and I look at others like you who have been out there preaching for decades, and you've brought so many people to the Lord, and you'll continue to. But when you look at that, those trends happening in culture, what goes through your mind, you know, as somebody who's been working to combat that and success- successfully for so many years? Well, you know, that's uh, uh, trying to find new ways, fresh ways through social media, encouraging those who are in it to speak plainly about the claims of Jesus, the joy that we have, be unembarrassed. I don't think we need to apologize. We're not aggressive in the nasty sense, but I'm enjoying life. This is great. It's better than a football game, a basketball game, or anything else. Walking with God, enjoying Him. And you know, the good thing that has happened to me these days is to totally clarify that, you know, John 11, 20-something, where at the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus says the famous words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, well, there's a contradiction here. It says, whoever believes in me shall never die, but uh, whoever, uh, you know, I am the resurrection and the life. It clarified to me that the moment you close your eyes on planet Earth and your body is dead, separated from soul and spirit, you are in the presence of the Lord. So in a sense, yes, you died because you left the body behind for the day of resurrection. But in another sense, you really didn't die because you are still alive and you're face to face with Jesus Christ. And so to me, one of the glorious things that we have to say to people is, yeah, this world is a mess. I mean, families break apart. That's why many are desperate. Yes, drugs seem to be a a palliative, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It destroys you. Don't be stupid. I tell the teenagers, you know, drugs will destroy you. So stop it. Don't be silly. Don't start. (laughs) Anyway, but the point is, you know, when we tell people the joy we have in Christ, the best revenge is a joyful heart, you know, that trust in the Lord. So we need to encourage Christians along those lines, Billy, uh, which I think you do, and, and I think it's fantastic, the whole idea that you have, you know, of, of uh, flicks that are truly pure and that encourage people to eternal life. I think that's a glorious uh, ministry that you guys picked up. Well, I think we have to be so, like you were saying, so creative right now because there is such a move in culture, right? There's so much happening, and yet I think people get discouraged and they assume, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? 
you know, culture's falling apart. But meanwhile, there are so many people who are finding Christ still. You're not hearing about it, yeah. right? Unless you're in ministry or you're seeing it. Yes. But having messages out there that give people another opportunity that's not just, you know, trash on TV, trash in movies. I mean, here we're talking about your film, which tells your story, a story of redemption and following God and changing lives. That's powerful. Yes. We need we need more of that. Yes, yes, we do. And you know, another thing for Christians not to forget, we've been in worse situations than this one before. Even in my lifetime, I was telling my grandsons, you know, who have a lot of questions, and we go back and forth on vacation this summer. Some of them are quite articulate. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> remind them, you know, in, in Eisenhower's day, okay, here comes Nixon. And Nixon it was almost sent to jail, and he was president of the United States. It was an awesome time. And then here comes President Kennedy, and President Kennedy had his situations in his private life. And then comes uh, Khrushchev, the head of the Soviet Union, which most people don't know what that is anymore. But anyway, eh, America confronted the Soviet Union and vice versa. And they were putting missiles in Cuba to bomb Washington and New York and Miami. And uh, Kennedy goes on the air, the president, and he says, we are surrounding Cuba with, uh, uh, you know, if any ship doesn't stop when we ask them, we'll sink of them. I mean, and he meant it, and Khrushchev retreated and left. Okay, those were amazing days. And then President Kennedy is shot. His brother Robert is shot. Martin Luther King is shot. And you say, oh my gosh, what's happening to America? We're falling apart. The enemy is walking into the neighborhood any day. You know, those were awesome days. And then, you know, uh, President Clinton, they were going to send him to jail over his behavioral situations. And now the present, uh, you were talking about trash movies, trash talk too today, you know. Yeah, we yeah. believers need to say to each other, look, we are the good news people. And when people see us coming, they should say, here comes a guy who believes in good news rather than this trashy stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we and we can't let it infect us. I think that, you know, when we start to mesh with the world and let it infect us and you know, not lead with our faith and lead with other allegiances, that's a problem. I mean, that's a big yeah. problem in the church right now. Um, and it always has been, but I think we're seeing it emphasized right now for a lot of different reasons. Um, but when, when you look when you look at your legacy, uh, and I know that word makes some people in the Christian world sort of uncomfortable, but, but the reality is when you look at your life's work, what do you want that to be? That legacy. Well, I think this movie that we're talking about, Palau the movie, uh, I'm promoting myself here, which is embarrassing, but in a sense, that's the legacy. You know, that our worldview, I come from Latin America. Look at Billy. If you knew the corruption in Latin America, you would think America is the playroom to heaven. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the injustice, the bribing, the cheating, the murders. The, the absolute fright that you have to just be alive. Most people would flee to the USA, to France, anywhere from Latin America, and they are fleeing because the corruption is so profound. To me, my missionary friends who brought us the Bible and Jesus, my dad and mom who were one of the first people to trust Christ in that generation uh, 100 years ago, uh, you know, they uh, they lived a different life. We lived in the midst of corruption and yet rejoicing, in the midst of troubles and revolutions. You know, in one country in Latin America, I'll not mention, so they don't bomb your building, uh, you know, they uh, they had like 170 revolutions in 120 years. I mean, you know, like more than once a year average of a revolution. When you live in the midst of that and you see the peace of God 
uh, the joy that Christ brings, the power of his presence in the midst of all the corruption, you realize how good the good news is. So we need to encourage God's people. And, you know, you're asking me now that I've got this cancer. It's not a joke, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, the Lord's been good to me. In the neighborhood, now that I don't travel as much because one of my sons, Andrew, is doing the campaign and festival preaching. But in the neighborhood, I go out. People stop, literally stop the car. And I didn't realize I was as well known as I am <laughs> here in Portland, Oregon. I thought I was a little weasel hand hiding in a corner of Oregon, you know. And <laughs> some people know me. They stop and they start talking about my illness and they tell me, how come you have so much peace? Why are you so contented? How come you're not afraid? You know, man, you can share the good news in a way that is totally surprising, Billy. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and using... You're not using, but the opportunities that you're having because of it—that's um, really interesting to hear. And I think it's because people want to know. They want to know when somebody is facing what you're facing. When you've preached for so many years um, about the gospel, how are you handling that, and how are you faring? And it sounds like you're faring very well. You know, I'm trusting the promises of the Lord. He's been good to me since I was a little boy. O- awfully good. A wonderful father. Uh, to me, I transferred allegiance from my dad who went to heaven to God, my father. I've always looked at him that way, and he's come through for me, and I don't see why he wouldn't come through for anybody who believes in him and trusts him, you know, and uh, so that you can live every day. Uh, You know, people, you ask me about legacy. I feel that the whole idea of trust the Word of God, rejoice in him every day, share as much as you can, and make it a proactive form of lifestyle to share the good news, to find opportunity. And that to me is the legacy. If my boys, we call them boys, they're men. If our sons, four sons that God gave Pat and I uh, walk with God and proclaim the good news, that's the greatest joy to go back to eternity and say, uh, our sons are doing what the scripture says and praise God for that, you know. Well, listen, Luis, I, I so appreciate you coming on the show today. We're going to make sure we encourage people to grab copies of the movie, watch it, because it's a real opportunity to watch what God can do with someone's life. I, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Oh, thank you, Billy. And thanks. Yeah, it's a real privilege to talk to you, too. And uh, I hope all good movies are promoted well. And I hope this one will be watched. You know, they can get a DVD through Amazon, as you know, and TheMovie.com, PalauTheMovie.com, they can get copies to to show it in a theater or a church, and it's amazing what the Lord has been doing. So, as I told you at the beginning, what amazes me, and I'm cutting out, okay, is the fact that many people write and email and say, you know, I cried all the way through. And I thought, wow, that's the Holy Spirit at work, you know? And then other people who've given their hearts to Christ. So, both things, to encourage God's people and to lead people to Christ— the fellow who paid for it and made it happen. That was his goal, and that was our goal, too. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you and your ministry, and we're praying for you. Thank you, Billy, and God bless you, truly. And that brings us to the end of our Pure Flix podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We had a great time catching up with Allie, and it was also really, really great to go back and hear what Luis Palau had to say. Make sure you head over to pureflix.com and watch the movie Palau. It is now streaming for you and your family to enjoy. And listen, there's lots of other movies over there and TV shows, lots to watch for the kids, for your family, for a date night. Um, there's just no shortage of content, so check it out. It's pureflix.com, and make sure you tune in next week for another episode of the Pure Flix podcast. 
That's all for today's podcast. You can follow PureFlix on Facebook at facebook.com slash PureFlix and on Twitter at PureFlix. And be sure to log on today to pureflix.com for thousands of faith and family-friendly movies and TV shows. Thanks for listening to the Pure Flix Podcast.